You're listening to Mental Work. I'm your host, Bronwyn, an early career psychologist based in Australia. And this is the podcast taking a closer look at the challenges faced by early career mental health professionals so they don't have to go it alone. Welcome back to Mental Work. Today, I'm very happy to be sharing the microphone with Dr. Emma DeSico. She's a clinical psychologist and a board-approved supervisor. She's also a clinical director and owner of the Dash Hub. Hey, Emma, how are you? I'm good, thanks. I love the name, Mental Work. That's Thank you. awesome. Yeah, well took done me, on that one. <laughs> Thank you. It took me ages to come up with it, and I'm glad that you like it. Um, it, it I hope people pick up on the wordplay that it's like, you know, we are in like a mental line of work and it does take a lot of mental work, but I don't know if it's obvious, but it's excellent. (laughs) Thank you. Emma, I've got you on the podcast here today to just talk about kind of general barriers facing early career sites. We're going to see where we go with this topic. There are a few things that you spoke to me about off air that we can bring in, which I'm really interested to ask you about. But firstly, I just want to have the listeners have a sense of who you are. Would you mind introducing yourself? Of course, um, this is a bit I don't really like. I love to talk, but I don't really like to talk about myself, so I'll probably be quite quick. Um, I think the things to to know about me are that I've um, had a few different experiences in terms of um, pathways to where I've gotten to. So I actually started as a four and two um, and then got partway through that, decided I wanted to go back and do a master's and then went on to do a doctorate as well after that before going into private practice, which is where I am now. So it's been an interesting journey. Um, professionally and on a on the personal end of things I've got three kids so it's very busy um, and, and I also love to run so I spend a lot of time running um, sometimes with my clients as well which is awesome. Wow that's really cool oh, it's like even then I'm like wow how do you do that like how do you run with clients that's so cool so I think we'll have lots to talk about it sounds like you've had a uh, maybe like a non-traditional pathway like throughout even your professional career to become a psychologist is that right? Yeah, I, I think you could you could definitely say that. Um, I really wanted to get right into practice as soon as I finished my undergraduate. So went and um, got offered a four and two pathway. That this was pre APRA, so you know it oh, was wow. a little bit different. Um, I, I, yes, I'm revealing my age now, but <laughs> I didn't expect you to say that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I. I I would say that it's been less than traditional, but definitely really fruitful. And it's given me a lot of amazing experiences to understand uh, where my supervisees and, you know, staff are coming from in their experiences as well. Yeah. So maybe we can start off like if you share maybe a little bit about what you're kind of seeing as the current landscape facing early career psychs, just from like your observations and I guess your professional experience being a clinic owner as well as being a supervisor. Yeah, it's a really interesting one, I think. Um, We've never really seen a time quite like the one at the moment. And I know a lot of our very early career sites um, and therapists coming through in the last, you know, perhaps they graduated 2019, uh, 2020. They're coming into a landscape where clients are just abundant and there is just no end to work. Um, And so that, I think, presents lots of different challenges um, and there's 
probably a few benefits in there as well because um, sites are so um, in in demand at the moment. It's really it's really difficult to be able to um, get the psychologist that you want uh, and the therapist you want to work with. But at the same time, I think it it's definitely challenging i think for for an early career psych to go into a space where they are probably bombarded with clients from from the very beginning yeah you must remember a time then when it wasn't like this if it's such a dramatic change so like were we not always in demand were we not always bombarded by clients no um it really wasn't. So um, pre-Medicare, before Better Access came in and um, people were able to get, you know, rebates for psychology services, you know, it really was quite, it was very expensive. It was very cost prohibitive to get into a psychologist. Um, and there really wasn't as much demand for our services, depending on the, the specialty. So when I started, um, I actually started in an EAP, which is a little bit different again. and the the way that services, the demand for services was really quite different to what it is today. Um, and when I first started in private practice, we had to work really hard to get the the referrals and the, the clients through and establish those relationships. Um, and then I actually started my own private practice January 2020. So you can only imagine that what it was like to start at the beginning of COVID. And it was just unbelievable the the sheer volume of of clients coming through at that point and trying to place them um, without overloading our psychs it was really important not to do that so yeah because perhaps like the temptation is to be like wow we've got so many clients like we could expand rapidly or like you know we could do like three clinics or something so it sounds like there was a conscious decision to be like well actually no we need to think of the health of our practitioners as well yeah, I think it's really important because when I when I first started out in EAP and I was a very brand new um, early career psych, um, I burnt out really quickly and it was a really difficult, exhausting experience and part of the reason why I went back to do my master's and then doctorate. And so coming, coming out of those experiences, I really went into creating my business very much from the perspective of wanting to protect clinicians because, you know, if our clinicians are well, then they're able to look after their clients and all of those kinds of ideas. Um, and I actually, you know, I'm a co-director. So the other owner of the business has come from corporate and finance background, which is just huge demand, huge stress, all of that sort of thing. So she's come into it with the same ethos around how do we create something that's truly sustainable for every single person in it, um, what does that model have to look like? And that's been a real challenge in some ways, but so rewarding in what we've been able to implement and how we've been able to do it. Okay. Yeah. Because like, I mean, just to point out as well, it's like, and I get really annoyed with this perspective, but some people are like, why are you getting so bent out? You're just talking to people, right? And I guess this <laughs> would be like the public perception, but like you and I would know that it's an incredibly emotionally and like cognitively demanding tasks that involves like a variety of things, not only talking, right? That's yeah, exactly. And and it depends what you're doing as well. I, I started out, I was doing very, very high risk, uh, like critical incidents and lots of, um, you know, that really pointy ended work. And so seeing that day in and day out, um, that was obviously really taxing. And I think in general, what we do, it, it is such emotion-based work and it is so 
it's so intense. And so once, if we're holding not only ourselves, but our clients in mind and creating a safe space and formulating and doing all these different processes at the exact same time, it is really, really difficult. Um, and I think it's, it's really easy to burn out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, like I've done an episode before where I've talked about burnout and yeah, I burned out myself like the end of last year and it's very unpleasant. And like, I guess like most people listening, like given just it's so common and just the state of the world and stuff, it's just like, it's very easy to burn out, particularly at this time. Yeah, even as you're talking, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about the factors um, that relate to burnout and, you know, it really does come down to, I think, a combination of different things. I mean, a lot of us are drawn into this field because of our own experiences and our own stuff. So there's going to be quite quite a number of us as a population who, you know, have have things in, in our background that might make us more vulnerable. And I think that's that's actually a really good thing because um, not that we're more vulnerable, but that we have had experiences and we want to go into a helping profession holding holding that stuff. But we also need to honour that um, and make sure that we've got buffer room as well. And so I guess it comes down to really knowing knowing yourself, knowing your stuff, knowing your triggers, knowing your needs. And that's, that's a really interesting thing. Um, but the way that we've done it, because I, I, um, really enjoy schema therapy. Um, yeah, and I too. use a lot of schema therapy. Yeah. It's yeah. Awesome. Um, I use a lot of schema therapy with my clients. And so in designing, um, the model that we use at work, um, I actually mapped it against like map the workplace against the core emotional needs. Oh, so cool. And I went, well, we've all got the same core emotional needs. We all just have different levels of them essentially. And that can map perfectly against a workplace. So why don't we do that? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Like I'm really, I'd be interested in unpacking that. I'm currently doing the schema accreditation myself. And so like, I'm interested and like lots of people are interested in schema. So I'd love to know like what you see is like the core emotional needs and like how you've mapped that out. Yeah, um, absolutely. I could talk forever about that. Um, So I think, yeah, if we look at it um, and we look at that, you know, the research tells us that if we're getting these core emotional needs met the majority of the time, then, you know, we tend to stay quite well. Um, and if we're looking at workplace wellness, why don't we apply the same concept there? So I kind of unpacked, so I, I talk about six core emotional needs, um, the first being safety. So we need we need safety in our workplace and that's not just physical safety, but it's psychological safety as well. And so that's making sure that all the different, you know, processes are in place to make sure that, that we are all safe where we work and that we feel safe. We walk into a space that feels safe for us, um, which is so important, but that's pretty basic. I think every workplace has that, you know, that's basic health safety. Um, so I then went to, okay, what, what are the other needs? So we've got secure attachment we really do need that. So how can we implement that in a workplace? And so that for me is looking at really stable and predictable figures in your workplace that you can rely on. Um, And yes, I'm talking about like a group private practice here, but I think it applies for individual clinicians or like community-based public health, whatever that is, because really then you're looking at stable and predictable supervisors, managers, And that sense of inclusion that you belong, um, which is so fundamental to us. So having having that within the workplace, I think, is a really good foundation. And then we we move to, you know, having the freedom 
to express valid needs. Uh, and that might mean, you know, being able to express the things that you need. So for instance, we're very um, neurodivergent um, as a workplace. And so having appropriate modifications and accommodations in place to meet the clinician's needs as well as the client needs um, and also having the opportunity for every person to have a say so that they can express. So we have quarterly meetings where we do what's called a democracy and we all, you know, put out things we want to, you know, start, stop and keep and vote on what can be implemented and what needs to change and everyone gets a say in that, which I think is is that that's really important that people get to express that very safely. And, you know, when we move on to the next core emotional need autonomy, that's pretty straightforward. You need a sense of control over, you know, the clients you see, a sense of control over your schedule, flexibility, things like that. Uh, for some people, it's more important than others. I know for me being a mum, I really need that flexibility. It's really important. So that's, you know, really fostering that that autonomy and people having a say over what their workday looks like is hugely important because you know you might be someone who can work till I don't know, 11 o'clock at night and I'm not I need to start nine o'clock in the morning and be done by you know six o'clock in the evening um, otherwise my brain will just completely melt down absolutely and I mean just to kind of stop on that it's like Literally, like when I was working as a provisional psych, one of my key grievances was that our admin person kept on changing my schedule around. Um, and so it would muck up my schedule. It would make me like work too much or make me work too little. And it was literally like so stressful. Like I could not believe how much this minor, seemingly minor thing was actually affecting me mentally. So it's like, you know, when we're talking about these core emotional needs, like I think it's important to, to communicate that they can't be understated how, how important they are. Yeah, it is. It is essential to your well-being. Um, if you feel that you don't have autonomy, um, and particularly if autonomy is very important to you as well, then and that it is for certain people like you and me. Um, so you know that's going to have a profound impact on your well-being. And so just knowing this about people and getting them to unpack it before they start, so that we know, okay, autonomy is the most important thing to you. What what needs to be in place. And I'm saying we, I do this with all of my colleagues, my um, supervisees, both within and outside of um, the practice, because it's really important to know what we need and how we can get that met appropriately. And I think a really important part of that is one of the key factors in burnout is not being able to work within your niche. So you know, perhaps it's working too broadly, uh, taking on clients that you really don't enjoy working with uh, or working in areas that, that aren't within your, you know, interest. And that that's pretty much a recipe for burnout as well. So I think part of autonomy is, you know, being able to say, these are the clients that I really enjoy working with. This is what I want to build on. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like with working too generally or with clients you don't enjoy, it's just, it makes the work unsatisfying. Um, we all have a need, I guess, for mastery and to feel satisfied with our work. And so it really touches on that as well. I think with this model that you're presenting, like meeting uh, employees' core emotional needs, I feel like it's quite revolutionary. Like, you know, there's one side that's like, with HR, it would be like, well, let's just give them a pizza party every quarter and then that'll be enough to take care of them. Like, you know, 
you know, I kind of haven't heard this approach before. It's really amazing that you want to take such good care of your psychologist. Like, have you found that it's been working? Yes, I want to say yes. <laughs> the feedback is yes. Um, it it's it is different, um, and I think it's very much appreciated um, by by the people that I work with. And I think it it's sprung from not you know not just that old HR line of you know keep them happy and then they'll do their job. It's it's sprung from a, like a deep desire within me to surround myself with a team um, who I really trust and I really um, gel with and you know, together, removing that, that sense of isolation. And to be able to do that, you've got to, you've got to build in those needs and really, really value that and want, and really want to work to, to meet those. Um, and I think being able to present it like that, as we're going through, it helps people to unpack what, what it is that they're asking for and why it's so important um, as well. And it gives you that joint language when you're going into conversations to be able to understand, you know, what perhaps the different perspectives are um, as well. And, I mean, you, you hit it on the nail on the head with um, that that sense of mastery that's so important to preventing burnout and that comes under the autonomy and competence. Um, yes need as well um and in addition to that it's a sense of identity and that's yeah it's so important I spend um the majority of um super supervisions uh particularly at the beginning with early career psychs helping them to understand that you know what we've got is a you know in the room this is a safe space for you to be able to you know let down the guards and just start to explore who you are as a psychologist. Like my job is not to educate you. My job is not to be the teacher and you are the student. It is to be equal and almost holding that mirror to, you know, let's unpack what kind of psychologist you are. And there's, there's no expectations around that. It's a journey of, of discovery. That's really cool because I do think professional identity is really important. And I mean, it's anecdotal evidence that like a lot of early career psychs are like, what the hell am I doing in this profession? Why should I stay? Should I leave? Maybe I can earn more money just working like at Kmart full time. And then I get all the reduced stressed. So I feel like meeting our core emotional needs as well as finding out our professional identity could be key to longevity in the profession as well as satisfaction. And I just wonder like whether maybe having your team in the long term was a motivator factor for you like all of this like would hopefully prevent burnout and encourage longevity right yeah I think sustainability is what is so important um I realized for me uh, very early on that I because I you know when I finished my master's and doctorate and you know all of that sort of stuff and then I was having babies in between and I realized after my last baby I had this like sense of panic when I went back to work and I couldn't, I just couldn't figure it out. I was just like, what is going on? You know, why am I so panicked? Why am I so anxious? Eventually it dawned on me that I had no end date now because I wasn't studying. I wasn't uh, going to have any more babies. So I wasn't going to have any mat leave. Um, There was no end date. Like I was going to have to work forever. Um, And it was, it was really it really overwhelmed me and I was like, oh my goodness, I didn't realise how unsustainable I feel 
my work is um, that I'm just so looking forward to every year or so having, you know, a year off essentially. And that, that really got me thinking, well, you know, should I be a psychologist? Maybe, maybe this is not what I'm meant to do. But then I realized it was probably, you know, a, a sustainability issue rather than, you know, a poor fit, if that makes sense. So I really focused on figuring out how to make this sustainable. How did you know it was sustainability thing rather than being a poor fit? Like, how do you know that you actually want to be a psychologist? Hey, I have a massive hex debt that tells me that <laughs> I need to be a psychologist. No, no. I think it's because I do love what I do. Yeah. Um, and I do, not all the time, there are certainly days, um, but I do love what I do and I do love being with my clients and I, I feel that... I'm relatively good at it. I wouldn't say good. I'm relatively okay at it. Um, and I, I do enjoy it. And so it felt to me that it was just not sustainable. It wasn't like I desperately wanted to go and do anything else. Yeah. So how can like early career psychs know, like, is it just that I'm not being resilient enough or is the job not sustainable or do I even like to be a psych? Colleges. Like I know that's a big question, but maybe we could focus on like maybe the first two. Like if I'm feeling burnt out, is it because I'm not resilient or is it because of the workplace? Could be a little bit of column A, could be a little bit of column True. B. Who knows? Um, I, there, there is a way to unpack that though. Um, and I do spend a lot of time working with um, early career psychs as well as colleagues um, who are feeling burnt out and having a look at what what's actually going on. What is what are your days looking like um, and what what chews up the most spoons for you? Um, I'm sure you're across spoon theory. Um, yeah, so we talk about spoons. What's, what's taking out the spoons? Um, and what is it in terms of the core needs that, is not getting met and how do we how do we introduce that and I know for me it came down to I am not the kind of psychologist who can see six or seven clients a day five days a week it is not me I just can't yeah Exactly. (laughs) Um, so I was like oh what do I do so I realized I was I, I wanted to keep being a therapist but to limit the amount of time I was doing that I wanted diversity. So I wanted to do other things. Uh, So I started doing assessments, which I really enjoy. It gives me the flexibility. Um, And I started um, doing, you know, various supervising, uh, building out the business, doing workshops and presentations and just really stepping into different areas and really changing it up which helped to keep things quite, um, quite vibrant and alive. And, you know, I didn't feel as burnt out. The other thing is I realized that, you know, we go through uni and it's really stressful and, you know, you've got a million different things to do and it feels like it's never going to end. But it does end, you know, and when you're doing that, you do get this sense of achievement when you've submitted that assignment and you've finished that exam and you've done this and, and there is kind of an end date to things. And I, I realized that with the kind of therapy that I do, it's more long-term complex that I'm, I wasn't getting that, that sense of achievement. Like, Oh, I've done, I've done something, if that makes sense. Yeah, and does. that's not related to the relationship with the, with the client It's more, you know, the project is finished and I can 
you know, step into the next thing. So I realized I needed to integrate that into my world as well. I need that sense of completion, mastery, achievement and next type deal. That makes perfect sense to me. It's like um, when I was doing my PhD, I quickly realized that compared to undergrad or honors, I wasn't going to get many ticks on my work. So it would come back usually with scruples, cross this out, rewrite this, rewrite your whole chapter sort of thing. And so I totally relate to that because it's like, oh, I'm not getting like these little, you know, ticks of encouragement or dopamine hits sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, little dopamine hits. Um, absolutely. And our clients don't come to us because they're feeling really well. They typically come to us with what's not working. And so you can spend your days feeling like you're not doing anything. And that's particularly early career. It's really hard to hold that. Really, really hard. It's like in my intervention, like thing for my notes, I'd be like held hope question mark. Like, you know, that's my intervention for the session. Yep. Holding their hope. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I totally get that. I, you know, I do wonder what your perspective on is with the like resilience of early career psychs. Do you think it's changed over time? Really hard to say. I, <laughs> I know there's been discussions and a bit of a trend toward early career psychs getting into the field and burning out very, very quickly. I don't, I don't know if that's more than it used to be in terms of, you know, um, the amounts um, of, of burnout. I would suspect that previously it was a real just keep on pushing through type thing, which I don't good idea. Um, I definitely don't recommend just push on through. I do think that early career psychs are under more pressure in a lot of ways because they are walking into quite comparatively high paying jobs and expected to kind of launch into your six clients a day in order to be able to sustain the figures that they're, you know, earning. And that to me is probably problematic for some people. I think also when we're, when we're talking about core emotional needs and the generations that are coming through, there is, I think, a bit of a trend that um, interpersonal experiences are very, very different for, for the generation coming through now. They've, they've grown up um, with phones and tech. I mean, I didn't get a phone until I was over 18 because they weren't in existence. Um, and so... Being launched from that world into seeing people in person and dealing with the, the anxiety that comes with interpersonal interactions day in, day out, that's a huge leap to make. Um, and I think there, there's a little bit of that that might come into it for some people as well. Like I'm a millennial myself, so like the pre the generation coming up, I reckon maybe younger psychs in their twenties, early twenties. I think they're the generation below, but yeah, they like grew up with tech quite early, and I think that's a really interesting observation that it's like there might be kind of a generalized anxiety about social interactions that might be coming into the way that new therapists are interacting with their clients as well. So there might be heightened anxiety there. Definitely think there is a heightened anxiety. Um, I I think that's that's been pretty obvious, I suppose, in my my observations across the board that there does seem to be that heightened anxiety, and there's good there's good reason for it as well. One of the um, observations that has come up previously where people are talking about early career psychs is that maybe earlier, like let's say 10 years ago, there was more of an emphasis on like your own personal stuff and exploring that and working out transference and counter-transference and uh, I guess addressing difficulties that you might have and triggers. And I just wondered whether that's an observation that you might've had as well, or maybe it's been different. 
so that's something I really focus on um, as a supervisor because I, I it is incredibly important. And so one of the first things that I ask my supervisees to do is actually to go away and do a schema formulation on their on themselves and in you know obviously whatever they're willing to bring in that is not therapy um, but there is that certain overlap between therapy and supervision and I, re I really believe that it's it's incredibly important that we know ourselves and we know as a supervisor we know our supervisees so that we can help them to unpack and help them to hold the stuff that that's triggered for them in an in a non-shaming way that acknowledgement that we are going to have our own stuff and that is okay and we can learn how to hold our stuff and show up as as the therapist we are as well yeah so I mean like overall there's kind of this real acknowledgement which might not have been in the past I'm not sure maybe you can speak to this but there seems to be this real acknowledgement nowadays that we're not just blank slate therapist it's like there's a human there we have needs and we need to meet those and if we do that then hopefully we can have sustainability and happier clinicians in the future yeah and I think that that's really important um you know if we if we continue down and our core emotional needs trail we you know obviously spontaneity and plays in there and that's incredibly important we need that um that's lots of fun team events and all that sort of stuff having that really light vibe um but one of the I think the, the core emotional need that most often gets overlooked uh, are the limits and self-discipline um, and having those realistic limits in place. For ourselves? For ourselves. And as well, you know, that might be within a workplace having realistic limits around, you know, the way you do your notes and making sure that you're maintaining compliance and all of that sort of stuff. But it's also in that cup, I, I talk about like self-reflection and constructive self-criticism. And being able to hold that as well, and that I think is is really hard to do as an early career psych. Uh, we tend to be so sensitive to perceived criticism or having done it wrong or whatever that that looks like. That it's that's a really tricky one. It's so true. I should do an episode on that because I think it's really true. Like it's something that I got trained out of during my PhD. If I was that sensitive, uh, I wouldn't have made it through because it was literally like rewrite this chapter six times. You're working on the same chapter for a year and a half, sort of thing. Um, so I quickly like adjusted to that, but boy, in the start, it was super painful and it's very similar to being a therapist. It's like, you want to do the best thing. And it feels like so embarrassing and shameful when you get something wrong. Um, so absolutely. It's such an important thing for early career psychs to, to learn how to do, to handle, I guess, constructive feedback well. Yeah, it is. It, it is really hard. And you're right. I was the same. I distinctly remember my supervisor writing the the note on my thesis after the millionth time I had rewritten it saying, you are teaching your examiners to suck eggs. And oh, I was my like, God. Thanks. <laughs> 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 so it was a bit of, okay, I'm just going to compartmentalize and shut down that emotion. Um, that response there. Uh -huh. Check that in the imaginary like lockbox of the brain. Yeah, that's it. Um, but I think if you know, if we really think about it, if we're if we're raising a child and we are meeting safety, secure attachment, freedom to express, you know, valid needs, autonomy, uh, spontaneity in play, but we're missing healthy limits, realistic limits, and you know, self discipline, we're doing them a disservice. They're they're going to grow up with some pretty significant issues, right? And I think it's the same as a psychologist in, in nurturing ourselves and being nurtured by our supervisors in our workplace. We need to make sure that that 
that need for realistic limits and self-control uh, and self-discipline is actually met. Um, and I do, I do focus on it in a specific way, um, which is quite easy to do to figure out how we tend to, what kind of coping mode we slip into when um, that inner critic fires up. Uh, and that tells us a lot about what, you know, what the mechanism is that probably undermines our resilience. Yeah. That's so interesting. I'm just aware of the time, Emma. So I think this might be a good bookend to our conversation. I feel like we could talk forever. I'd be so interested in discussing further that idea of like what contributes to resilience, but also how we can get better at the uh, self-discipline and setting realistic limits for ourselves. But I just wondered whether you wanted to end on something like if you had an overall nugget of wisdom for like early career psychs to take away from this conversation or in general, what would it be? Um, I've probably got a few, but one of them would be book your leave in advance. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Thank you. It's so practical. Love it. <laughs> yeah. And book lots of it. Minimum six weeks if you can per year. Thank you. I think that's so important. I did the same thing for myself this year after the burnout thing last year, and it has worked so well. Like, do you do the same thing? Yes. And it's, uh, I sit down with all my clinicians at the beginning. I'm like, right, we're booking your six weeks of leave. So when are we going to, do you need it all at once? Or do you prefer a week here and there? Yeah. What does that need to look like? Plan it in advance. <laughs> Brilliant. That is amazing. So Emma, if listeners want to find out more about you or your practice, where can they find you? Uh, so we have a website, www.the-hub.com.au um, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, although I'm terrible at Instagram, so I apologise in advance. Um, <laughs> don't look at the Instagram. <laughs> maybe not, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, and could you be contacted for, say, like supervision or are you um, booked out for now? Yeah, so I'm always happy um, to touch base with anyone around supervision. Um, we have a, a senior team as well who also um, provide supervision uh, and are really lovely and we work together on that. So we definitely have, have space there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Emma, for joining us. I'm really pleased to have had you and learn about, I guess you're just really unique approach to assisting early career psychs. I wish all our workplaces were like this. It's like, as you're talking, I'm like uh, ticking off the needs that were unmet in previous workplaces. And it sounds like you've onto something. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I really, really enjoyed having a chat with you. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career mental health professionals. If you're loving the show and don't want to miss an episode, press subscribe on your podcast listening app. And if you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous ones, leave us a rating and review on iTunes and Spotify. What topics would you enjoy hearing us talk about on the show? We'd love to hear from you. Email us your suggestions at mentalworkpodcast at gmail.com. Have a good one and see you next time.